Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Now that I'm all hot and... What's up, folks? Technical difficulties, no internet at my end. Apologies for that. Uh, It's 10.33 on the West Coast, 10.30, I mean, 1.33 on the East Coast. Uh, I think it's now 6.30 UTC. You might want to check that, but I think I think that's right. No idea what time it is in Australia. Sorry, it's you moved daylight saving, we moved daylight saving, so now it's it's probably two hours different, earlier or later. No idea what's happening, fellas. <laughs> Just enjoying the beginning of the melt up. <laughs> the value melt up. That's right. That's what I've been saying. <laughs> There's a lot of heat other places. There's a lot of reasonable stuff elsewhere. Once everything gets unreasonable, that's when we will have melted. So get ready for the potty. I like the thesis. How many? How do you uh, surf that wave? I think that uh, most of our listeners are in the beginning of paddling on the crest. I think they've already been wiped out for two years ago. That's the problem. They've been stranded on some paddling. coral reef out in the middle of the ocean waiting for the wave. Here it is. Yeah, no doubt. Townsville, right on. Got some Queenslanders in the house. So, what's what's everybody uh, what's everybody uh, talking about today? JT, I have uh, should be a fun little segment on archery versus darts and investing. Oh yeah, nice. What about you, uh, Billy? I think I'm going to talk about the part of myself that I hate. I think that's what I'm going to talk about. Did we do that last week? <laughs> no, no, no. It's I every think week. we're going to do it again. I think we're going back there. And then we got to touch on Berkshire because the buff dog crushed it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Let's. How about uh, you, Toby? What do you have? Look, I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to give uh, my second se- my my segment over to Bill to talk about Berkshire because I, I want to talk about that. Um, but I, I haven't had a look at the the filing yet, so. I'm going to need some oh, gardens. Thing of Saturday morning, first thing I did. <sighs> hey, by the way, gents, uh, happy 50th episode of yeah. After Hours. I'm glad, hey. you, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah. I can't believe we and made as 50. A, uh, a special little thing, I, I had my team at, at Farnham Street put together a little something for the, for the one of the 10. And uh, so if you go to farnham-street.com backslash V-A-H, like value after hours. Uh, we put a little something together for you. So anyway, cool. let's move on. Oh, snap. We'll put that in the, I put did that not in the show notes. JT, JT alerted me, uh, alerted us just a little bit earlier today. I've been uh, on the Peloton. <laughs> <laughs> what's that? And I got naked and swam in the pool. For? So that's been my afternoon. Let's, let's, Might be a little bit much, but I got my clothes on now. Let's start with Berkshire. Uh, it's nominally my uh, it's nominally my topic, but I'm going to hand it off to Bill to give us. Or you both, you guys have read the both both you guys have read the filing. So let's talk about Berkshire. What what happened? Yeah. What's the big news? I mean, I don't know that I can do it off the top of my head. I can pull it up here, but I mean, you know, the nine billion of of buybacks in the last quarter, I think, is impressive. Uh, you know, like for a guy that lost it, uh, you know, he hasn't totally lost it. I thought it was interesting that he ramped the buybacks into September. I don't know what that 
tells you sort of about how he's thinking of the world. At higher prices, is. right? That was interesting. That I noticed that the, the, the buybacks went up as the price went up. Right around here. He's just Actually. pinning it up. Market manipulation. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's <laughs> yeah, what he cares about. It is. I was wondering, though, I mean, it's a, it's a huge market cap, but I, I wonder what kind of constraints you even run into if you're him like when you call your broker and you say let's let's do nine billion a buyback (laughs) (laughs) i wonder if somebody's like uh okay how are we gonna do that some traders got a tall order but generally i mean it just to look at how that entity has performed through a pandemic and for it to be an industrial company and to just see the way that the the pieces within the business move, whether it was the first quarter or the second quarter or now the third quarter, right? Like earlier in the year, Geico gave you a little something. Now you're giving back on Geico and maybe you're giving a little bit up in re- reinsurance, but they're underwriting new reinsurance at higher premiums. You've got like BNSF is coming back, right? And it's starting to, it's just, it's a beautiful collection of businesses where you have an industrial that free cash flow is increased this year through a pandemic. That's incredible to me. What a life's work, right? I mean, yeah. Anti-fragile. Uh, so good. Did you see, I, I uh, talked a little bit about a, if you did a long Berkshire short Apple stub. Yeah. How'd yeah. that work out? Uh, well, I mean, just the math of it is like roughly, that leaves, call it like 400 billion left over uh, once you back the Apple out and then take another, call it 300 out for cash and securities. And that's probably a little overly aggressive because there's, call it 20 billion that you need of like sort of working capital for insurance, but whatever, this is just rough. But that leaves you with like $100 billion to buy basically like the railroad, the energy company, Seize Candy, uh, Geico, like everything. Right. Like it's and the probably the railroads worth that hundred billion and everything else is free. I mean, that's a that's a pretty good. That's not a bad stub there. Good stub. Did did yeah. how, how has that performed? Because where did I, I'm guessing Apple kind of topped out around one September or something like that with everything else. Well, I, I think I posted that on Friday and it's like I think it's up almost 10 percent as a trade in like two days. But that doesn't mean anything. What about yeah, the what about uh, selling the Apple? Sold five billion dollars of Apple, like not material really to to his holding, but that's still that's five billion dollars. Yeah, we'll see. And I, I get mean, it. We'll <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what about it? I gotta say, I was, I was a little bit. Maybe Coke taught him something. I don't know. It's Ooh. hasn't sold a lot of it though. Like just five billion. How, what's the what's the size of the holding now? 111. 111, yeah, 5%. Not much. But I guess he's, I mean, he's not all in or all out, Never sell right? to sometimes trim. Yeah, I guess, I <laughs> I guess you get, if, you get, if you get enough of a price, you can sell a little bit. Yeah, it's, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how Apple works from here. You, I can make an argument that it's going to be just fine, just given the amount of take that they're going to have on the app store so uh but it's interesting we're talking business or stock price though i i mean dude the stock price might be okay i mean you really might i don't i don't know that it's like objectively too high to me like i really don't 
Um, if I was him, I'd probably sell some calls or issue some convertible exchangeables <laughs> or something like that for sure. Hedge it, hedge it a little. Yeah, but I, you know, I don't think it's got to be all or nothing. But uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I just, I, I, in I, fairness, uh, I would have hedged like you know, too far ago, three X ago, yeah. or something. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, somebody in the comments is saying Apple five trillion. I mean, that's where I think it would get a little rich. Like objectively. Well, way to go out on a limb there, guy. <laughs> I've said that in the past. You're really melting up. I yes, I fully think that we could get stupid here you, what, in the what, next couple of years. What about the last I don't few see days? Why not? What, does the last few days give you any pause on that? I don't know. I don't think so. Because we I mean, not really. We've had the the fifteen sigma move against us in momentum and for us for and like 12 and a half sigma move for for value which like last year it was only a six sigma event so the oh. sigmas are i, I don't even if know how big that is that a lot, many, just keep adding them if you get that many sigmas that tells me that something's wrong with your scoring system <laughs> well as as any as anybody who's read one has read any taleb will say it's not normally distributed the tails are fatter than that that's why it's not that it's not a it's not that many sigmas but it's still yeah. a big move. Big move. I need to read some Taleb. A lot of people have told me that I should. Have you have you read Phil by Randomness? I don't think so. That's the only one you gotta read. That's a really easy read. That's his first one. That's yeah. a, that's a great I book. I probably like Anti Fragile the best of them. I couldn't get through anything else, honestly. Really? Uh, I, I I own them all and I've read like the first part, but I was like, you know what, I get it. Do I need to read another book about it? That's fair. Somewhere he's just ranting because he's listening to this and he's on Twitter he just going, one of the ten. damn, damn. <laughs> Imbeciles. Imbeciles. <laughs> blocking you. He's already blocked you. And he liked you and then he just yeah, blocked idiot. you. Right here. Preemptively blocked. Well, I make no claims to being an intellectual. I'll claim the second part. Yet idiot. Yeah. Still an idiot after all these what years. Some other things that I sort of liked about Berkshire, the the um, the auto group I thought did slightly better than I, I. I mean, I don't have like, I don't like underwrite these estimates on the auto group. I mean, it's at a certain point like I just outsource a lot of this shit to Buffett, right? But like when I saw how it performed, I was pretty impressed with it. Um, I, you know, what I don't understand is why he bought the McLean Group, right? He bought that from Pritzker, right? And like that. That business doesn't seem to make a ton of sense to me within his sort of like buy high quality, buy these business. I mean, even in the, you know, in the queue, he's like, this is an extremely competitive business. It's sort of an odd, I mean, I know it's distribution, so he probably sees some physical moat there, but that one I don't fully understand. Berkshire if Hathaway Energy is a monster. If I remember the, uh, I might be wrong on this, but the returns on capital on it aren't that bad I, the margin is incredibly low but the turnover is very high so yeah, it's, it's a little better than it looks yeah that makes sense but you, you know i mean you think about like um like what what precision's gone through this year right and i mean i i just i don't know as a i mean i am a freaking buffett fanboy right at the end of the day so to see him be able to have his business do this in a pandemic is pretty awesome Dude, cash flow from operations first nine months of this year versus last year, 10% increase. Now do per share. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Now lever it. 
Just a little. Yeah, he did that too. <laughs> a little bit. The, the funny thing about Buffett, I've said this to you guys before. I don't know if I've ever said it on this uh, here, but the more, the longer I, the more experience I get, the more I appreciate what a good investor Buffett is. Like I, I kind of knew at the start what a great investor he is, but the more I, the more I understand, the more I realize what he's doing is is really something kind of unbelievable. It probably, you know, won't be replicated for generations. He's probably like at that. I mean, everybody already knows this, but he's. The, the industrialist of our age anyway there's a question here in the comments about geico right and like if tesla takes off you know should geico be worried or let's just call it self-driving in general i think yes probably on a long enough time horizon but the other side of that man is like these cars these days are so easy to total that insurance rates are going to go up like i mean copart is the winner and I, I think that Progressive and Geico will probably push rates. I, I wouldn't be shocked to see margin build sort of into whatever inevitable cliff that people worry about that I'm not even convinced is all that close. But, I mean, like like that Tesla that, that my grandma totaled backing out of a garage, like that was absurd. That was just body work. And the more computers, the harder it's going to be to fix. It is an interesting thing that it might be a – it might become more like cat but where it's not as yeah. often that you get, but the damage it's is bigger. bigger and more yeah. expensive, and the, maybe the premiums are, don't really come down that much as much as you would think. I don't know. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Yeah. By the way, I was going through, um, I've probably read it a dozen times now, but the, the essays of Warren Buffett, and uh, maybe more than that, maybe 20 times, but I was going through and reading it again, and like I find it very funny to look at the old things that I highlighted and like what was I sort of thinking at the time, and it's 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 amazing how much nuance there still is for me to pick up even after reading it so many times. There's not a word that's out of place in that, and every word is carefully chosen and has a very specific, nuanced meaning to it. I mean, it is just it's about as good as it gets. It's so true. Every time I think I've learned something new, I go back and read it, and then I realize that that was what Buffett was talking about. I'm like, ah, now I get it. Yeah. Didn't get it the first time. You already knew all of that. <laughs> yeah, he's much smarter than I'll ever hope to be. Oh, I I have been issued a, a live in podcast correction. I got Marmon Group and McLean mixed up. McLean came from Walmart, apparently, so my stupidity was exposed. It's so it good. won't be the last time. We're, we're, we're multitudes. We're getting stuff right, correcting stuff on the fly. I'll tell you what, man. The ten are getting sort of like nippy. So, I, I, even, I, I didn't get to acknowledge it last week, but I did see the comment that somebody fi finally figured out you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain, which was the line I was trying to remember. And uh, you thought it was Seneca, but it was actually <laughs> uh, Batman. Yeah, I was thinking Kierkegaard. <laughs> yeah, it was the the Joker, or it was, it was Marvel, or something like that. Yeah, it was Harvey Dent. To to be fair, I couldn't remember it properly, so that's my that's my excuse. There's some, yeah, the there's some philosophy in Marvel, I guess. I haven't studied. There's a ton of enough. philosophy in Marvel. It's DC, not Marvel. Come on, guys. I'm sorry, DC. Well, that is true. Oh, that's gonna that get is me true. crucified for that one. Yeah. I'll tell you what, my kids want to watch Star Wars, and like now I'm trying to figure out, I've realized five years old is probably not the time to watch Star Wars from watching it with my five-year-old. I realized that was maybe a, a bit too far, but there's... Uh, too early or too late? 
I don't know. It seems like there's a lot of violence that I'm not totally comfortable with him seeing. Oh. My six-year-old's a little bitch. That kid will run out of the room if, like, anything happens. He gets so fucking anxious, so I can't watch it with him. The five-year-old could take it, but I don't know if I'm giving him nightmares behind the scenes. Anyway, there's a lot of stuff in Star Wars that's really good that I underappreciated as a kid, and now to be able to rewatch it. I know there's Star Wars fans out there that are like, yeah, Bill, we fucking get it. Um, but I'm just telling you, like, I... It's good. It's worth watching. Did you watch uh, episodes one, two, three? That's a hot take. Right there. <laughs> Look, I think ten billion dollar franchise. Okay. You, you have to watch the red letter well, media analysis of, of one, two, three. It's hilarious. This is how I feel about Marvel too. I think it's great, and some people are like, "Oh, Marvel's pretty good," and I say, "Yes, that's why I'm somewhat obsessed with it." I just got introduced. Sorry, I don't know everything that's great in the world. Anyway, let's do JT's topic. <laughs> okay. Except for the Queen's Gambit. That was awesome. Rip that out in a week. Whew. It's worth uh, watching. Yeah, I got to get on that one. Okay, so Annie Duke's new book that just came out is called How to Decide. And in there, she's talking about uh, having an archer's mindset. And what, what she's getting at is that uh, it really pays to focus on aiming for that bullseye because even if you miss a little bit you know you're going to hit a decent score and so she says just like in decision making archery is not all or nothing where you get points only for hitting the bullseye and everything else is a miss an archer gets points for hitting the target at all okay so if i think about that mindset kind of applied to investing you might end up saying gosh if i can just find the next amazon or google and it's even one tenth as good as those turned out it's going to be a monster home run for me right and so i'm aiming for that bullseye of like the the monster compounder super compounder and even if i'm close i'm going to get a really good outcome now you know something like you know snowflake comes to mind a little bit where it's like you ask oh is it going to be bigger in 10 years from now yeah i probably like but it better be at a $68 billion valuation. It needs to be incredibly bigger, right? Um, so what, I think what's interesting is asking yourself, is investing like archery, like Annie's talking, or is it more like darts? And in Rory Sutherland's book, Alchemy, he talks about different scoring systems. And one of them is darts, where it doesn't always pay to go for the, the single highest score. Um, so in this instance, if you look at a dartboard, the, the 20 at the top is what the pros aim for. They're trying to hit like the triple 20 most of the time. And, but on either side of that is a one and a five. And if you miss, you're going to end up hitting a relatively low score. And so the average of those three slices on a dartboard is 8.7. Now, if you look at the Southwest quadrant of a dartboard, you get the numbers 16, 7, and 19 together. And the average of those three is actually 14. So not not quite double, but almost double. So if you were to miss it all, you end up potentially with not a bad, uh, not a bad outcome. So ironically, uh, you, know, you almost want to aim for the 7 and hope to hit either a 16 or a 19. Now... Uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy in 2014 wrote this pretty good piece about lottery stocks. And, you know, these were typically, uh, you know, 
some new innovation or technology or something revolutionary that uh, captures the imagination. And, you know, they tend to be in the 10% highest price to sales, price to cash flow, price to earnings. And, you know, they, they tend to skew towards biotech and, uh, you know, pharma and technology software. Uh, and you have these very, very big outcomes out of that, that group. That's what, that's uh, what keeps people hunting in the expensive stuff. That's what keeps them going is these lottery type of outcomes, right? And he updated the piece in 2015 with a, a really nice note called uh, Lessons for Market Extremes. And what he found was that when you look at that basket of the glamour stocks, they contain the, the highest outcome, like outcome stocks. They're these, like these giant winners, right? They're like hitting that 20 on the dartboard. However, so that uh, the best performing of those glamour stocks put up a, uh, let's see, plus 112% on average. However, the median of them underperformed by 11%. So if we're throwing the dart, we're likely to get that 11% underperformance and not necessarily that huge 118% outperformance winner. Now, if you look at- the I don't value, know that I agree with this. I'm just gonna pin that, continue. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, well, just before you go in, isn't that, isn't that Parthama Hanran, who I talked to on the podcast, he's the guy who had, uh, I'm now blanking a little bit on what his score is, but he, he was like, uh, he, he saw the F score and said, is it the, no, that's right, the growth, growth score, that's right. And so his idea was apply the F score in the really expensive stocks. And then he told me on the podcast that it's, it's, it's a pretty good performer, it outperforms. It outperforms the market, outperforms that cohort of stocks. But the way that it does it, for the most part, is it's short the stuff that falls. So it's the short side that generates the returns rather than the long side. But then you also have the nice benefit over the last few years, of course, that it's been the long side that's generated the return. So I was alerted to uh, that strategy by the Validia guys, and they pointed out that it had been the best performed strategy of all the strategies that they track for the last few years. So it's a good strategy, anti-value. Mm. Anti yeah. So the if you look at the value segment, which to me represents the Southwest quadrant of the dartboard, uh, you had the best performing of that group was a plus 76%, which is pretty good, but not nearly as good as the 112 of the other. But the, the, the median was an outperformance of 5.4%, right? Go. So that's sort of like missing on the dartboard, but getting a decent outcome. Um, so something to think about, you know, if you are an incredible dart thrower, uh, you know, a professional, maybe you have a shot at, at just ringing up the triple 20s, but I'm a little bit pessimistic that there are many, as many good dart throwers out there as maybe think that they are at this point. Uh, so maybe be a little bit more intellectually humble, realize that you're going to miss on the dartboard and aim for places that uh, can lead to uh, maybe tighter dispersion of outcomes, but a more positive expected value. Yeah, I like that. I don't know that I agree. Here's the thing. I I mean, I've sort of talked about it with the David Gardner thing. If your definition of value is a stock that could re-rate and double, this sort of goes into what I hate about myself, so I'll just use this example. So, so Spirit Aerosystems is a good example of something that I wrote on my blog recently. And the thing about owning that company is I don't 
it's not a compounder in the sense that you could just own it forever. So eventually I would need to sell it, right? And like, I don't know, I I truly believe it was too cheap. I don't know what exactly the right price target is. I mean, I don't actually believe in myself to have that kind of precision. I think I'm reasonably good at knowing when things are cheap. I don't think I'm very good at knowing when things should be sold. Uh, so, so in that game, I'm basically betting on a re-rating where I think I have to use what I perceive myself to be weakest at to exploit the advantage, right? Because I don't want to own the company forever. So I'm like, I'm selling and then paying tax where I think that there's some genius in what like the David Gardner philosophy is, is yeah, maybe my probability of a zero is higher or probability of a bad outcome is higher in some of these you know, traditionally higher valued uh, stocks. But if I spray enough of these bullets, the right tail is going to take me out of that. Like I can overcome that hurdle if I truly can hold it. And I just think it's a matter of personality. So the, the analogy would be that uh, it's not a 20, it's a 200 on the dartboard. Yeah. Yeah. I think because I think some of these value stocks that people, uh, I shouldn't say people, that I used to look at have a truncated upside and i that i think can skew the the set of probabilities quite a bit whereas like i was reading crowdstrikes 10k today and back back in the day uh i was talking to somebody he was like employee 9 to 11 or something like that he doesn't work anymore but he said uh he was like they're they're going to win it's inevitable and today when i was reading the 10k I was just sort of like processing what he was saying while I was reading it. I think people should read that 10K. And, you know, is it buying today? I, I don't have any clue. I don't have any view on that. What I do know is I don't think that that valuation is patently absurd if you have the view that it's inevitable and you believe what the 10K says. So, like, those questions have to be answered. Um, and I don't know how many of these companies are that way or whatever, right? Uh <laughs> To your point, the valuations imply inevitability on a lot of these things. But I, I just don't – I used to think that that bucket was really stupid to fish in. I think it's probably stupid for the average person to make concentrated bets in, but I don't know that I agree that it's a bad place to fish forever. That said, these valuations are really demanding. Do you want to just like, talk about the really Gardner? Demanding. What is Gardner's strategy for those who don't know? So my, I mean, it's all my perception of it, right? He's, not, I'm not him, uh, but I, I believe what he tries to do is to look for disruptive technologies, pick them early, and hold them until the very, like he wants to be the last person holding. So like he is truly never sell. He'll hold it through a six x and then back down to zero, in theory, right? But he also picked Amazon at three bucks. Now. If he and I were chatting, David, thank you for listening. But I would say some of this, like we recommended Amazon at three bucks. Well, you know, dude, if you're recommending 2000 stocks, I don't know that you can really tout that. But uh, I do see so the index. Also <laughs> yeah, recommended Amazon. Russell yeah. 2000. High five. But that's sort of yeah. the business. Right. So I understand the clickbait part of it. But um, I just I, I do think the way he talks and the way he thinks it's it's hard to look at his returns and discount the strategy it could be a function of where we are in the market i mean if i were to take the devil's advocate approach to it that's what i would say but 
you know, it's I I don't think that that's that crazy. Is it is it what is the difference between what he does and what Phil Fisher advocated? I think they're pretty darn similar. It's a Phil Fisher application. I think I I don't I I'm really talking out of school on this and maybe we'll talk I Phil Fisher. Talk Phil Fisher. Okay, I, I my perception is maybe Phil was a little bit deeper in the weeds on stuff, or at least or wrote in a way you, yeah wrote in a way that that I perceived him to be a little bit more fundamental and less sort of trend riding. But I I really apologize if that's wrong. I have not read enough of Gardner to to really know that. Do you, do you get an understanding of what Gardner's process is, or do you only ever get to see the the picks? I'm sure if I subbed, I would. In but broad I'm terms, that shit. In, like you get it in broad terms, like just we're going to pick Amazon he at three dollars. Pretty well in the uh, that Consuelo Mac interview. Yeah, and I, I mean, I about it. I mean, it's. I don't yeah. think it's unreasonable. It's just not really that that style of game doesn't appeal to me as much as uh, trying to make. I guess we're all making positive expected outcome bets. I just am not sure about catching the winners as readily. Yeah, I think I think he has more of a tolerance for catching a loser and allowing the winner to bail him out of that. Whereas I think people that more identify with value are more focused on waiting for this fat pitch. I think he's like Vladimir Guerrero in baseball terms where he just swing at any pitch and he connects with some and you know, like the Buffett is closer to like, just wait for your strike and then swing. Right. And, and I, I could, I could even, if I was him, I'd probably say that my strategy carried less risk because you're more diversified out of the gate. So if you're wrong on one, your, your risk of ruin is actually quite a bit lower than the Buffett strategy because the Buffett strategy, when you swing big against the market and you're wrong, could really screw you. It's hard though, right? Like there's still there's still a requirement that you hit in uh, in those spray and pray strategies. Not I'm, I'm, no spray and pray might be a little bit rude. I, I don't mean to be, like it's. I'm, let's talk Fisher rather than rather than Gardner. Like Fisher's doing pretty rigorous analysis. I don't think we're saying anything rude, are we? I want to I be very. I'm not. I'm not trying to. I really to. do like him, and I think people should read his stuff. Just I don't. Anytime you comment on anybody's strategy, this the misunderstanding is going to be. Well, that's why I tried to. Like, yeah, you'd be like fine. Say, you'd be fine. I'm trying, I don't I'm... know what I'm talking about here. This is all my perception, but I do think people should read that because I think it's important to understand. Even though I said I don't understand it, so there's some hypocrisy there. Guilty. <laughs> it's the it's Sorry. the difference between um, like a a VC approach to investing, where we're going to have a portfolio where there's one or two monster winners. There's another two or three that break even and there's probably five that are busted i can't believe do vcs really run 10 like that used to be that they say vcs that have 10 positions that but then i think that was a hundred yeah well that's that's the the y combinator i thought that was what y combinator or who i might be mixing two ideas together here but i thought that they had taken the approach we're going to have a hundred positions because it's going to be a uh that's such a right tail distribution. We just need to make sure we've got enough granularity in that right tail to get, we want to get as close to the distribution as we can. Right. Yeah. Let me I ask would you give this. money to somebody that did that. I would not give money to a VC that had 10 positions. That seems there, like a great there, there way are to lots of, There are lots of rolling funds being advertised on Twitter. Yeah, well, yeah. lots of shit in finance. Generally. Let me ask you this. With the, the, ext- 
you know, you're looking for these extreme power law outcomes, right? And do you think that the trend towards later IPOs, which means bigger IPOs, which means less growth available for you as the public equity holder of it, might pinch that strategy somewhat? I don't think it might. I think you are identifying a very real issue. But then I, I think that I think that could be the strategy's Achilles heel going forward. The, but then the the potentially the answer might be to to set up a rolling fund or to invest in these rolling funds or to look on um, what's Naval's site called Angel Angelist, An- yeah, to invest through yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I think if you were to get into the private markets, probably that's probably the way that maybe you could do it a little bit. I guess in a reduced risk fashion. Although then you're in the private markets, so I don't know that it's really reduced risk. Everything investment. Do you think that that's lower risk than Buffett's strategy? Really? Is that not for Buffett? Yeah, not for Buffett. Yeah, that's fair. Person, yeah, I think maybe. I mean, Buffett's a savant. Like I, I think if like for me to run Buffett's strategy, I just don't believe in myself that much i'm not going to be 50 percent in a position it's just you won't see it i got i i said the other day that i'd take enough risk to get on a private jet i don't have that kind of money (laughs) that that like a payoff would make it and i if i lose big i gotta move out of my house like my kids would suffer i'm not taking that risk still still the best sizing discussion still the most honest sizing discussion ever (laughs) well it's true so um no, I think for Buffett that's the right strategy, but I do think it's a very personal game. So that's true. Whatever you do, you just have to be able to hold through the part where it's not working. Yes. Yeah, or like the part that I hate about myself is this the spirit idea, right? Like I will buy into things that like I understand, right? Like I get it, but then owning it is so freaking different to me than researching it and understanding it. And I, there are certain scenarios. I don't do it with my bigger positions, but some of the smaller ones, I run my fantasy football team in a very similar way. Um, like I have these core positions and then sort of like the role players, I'll churn them out and I probably just shouldn't even do it. Uh, it's definitely helped me recently, but I don't know. I feel like that's probably a weakness of mine. Just working the waiver wire too much? Yeah, I think so. Mm. I think so. Got a question but, here. Going to go a little bit early on the questions because because yeah. apparently we didn't spend enough time on it last week. So uh, here's a question, philosophical question. What is your disagreement to creating a dumbbell portfolio of value and growth with, I'm guessing, fundamental analysis for value and technical analysis for growth or growth indices, assuming it's not reading chicken gizzards? I don't know enough about technical to say one way or the other about its merits or i mean i think there is something to the crowd psychology of it and that that's it's picking up and probably capitalizing on other uh human biases they're just not as readily obvious to me and i find it harder to and listen i make you have to be very a deep believer in whatever strategy that you're running because you will get tested right and so if it's like it sort of makes sense to you it it will push like the market will push you out of that that approach. That's it. By testing you, right? So if I'm sort of half-assed on technicals, like I'm just gonna I will quit readily, right? So I'm not even gonna start. That's kind of my logic. 
If you want to yeah. do it, I think that you want to use like there's momentum is a pretty well accepted. I guess that's momentum is technically technical, <laughs> but I think that yes. I think that the research on it is pretty robust. And I, and from what I understand, talking to the guys who implement momentum, they think that it's a better way of identifying fundamental income growth, fundamental earnings growth, or fundamental revenue growth. They just use, pr- and I think that they include they include earnings momentum as well in in the uh in their analyses it's not purely price momentum so i think that that you know that that's a very common construction to have some portion of the book in momentum and some portion of the book in value it's not the way i want to do it though but i think it's i think it's perfectly fine for anybody who wants to do it I guess the thing that i don't like about this strategy is to jake's point earlier about like how the probability of loss I think is objectively higher from a frequency standpoint when you're fishing in the really expensive pond. And I guess that on one hand you could cut your losses quicker with technical analysis, but on the other, I think that you're probably going to see more volatility when you're playing that game. I, I, I mean, I would need to see statistically whether or not I'm right, but my hunch uh, is also that it's probably the wrong time to be thinking about that one. Uh, yeah, and if, like if you're gonna buy, if snowflake, you're a long only momentum. Yeah, well, if if you're gonna buy Snowflake and you're fundamental, like I wouldn't sell that based on technical reasons. Like that doesn't yeah. make a whole lot of. Like I I would buy that knowing like I could take a fifty percent drawdown in this tomorrow because people just change their mind of the future. So uh, I just don't know that I I understand bot- selling because the technical is there. One of the I things like that the barbell or. You know, the barbell strategy makes sense to me. One of the things that Jim O'Shaughnessy points out in his, I, th- I think it's I think it's in What Works on Wall Street, is that um, momentum's not necessarily buying the most expensive stocks. It's, uh, the, you, I think the stuff that it's buying is stuff that's like largely unknown, that started to move. Mm-hmm. And then- Now you're going to be momentum soon. Well, please. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Well, that's actually where I would be most inclined to use technicals is looking in deep value and looking for breakouts. I mean, that would be where I would be like, okay, is momentum starting to go into this name? Because then you start to get like fun flows going in your favor and stuff like that. Once you're messing around like $60 billion valuations, like who's the incremental buyer and how quick do they? I mean, I know that that's like trader talk, but it's also real unless you're going to hold it until the cash flows develop, which... You gotta lock up capital for a long, long time if you're gonna play that game, and you gotta be right. Not the easiest thing. No. Um, folks, I can't ever comment on any of the uh, for compliance reasons. I can't comment on any of the things that I run. Uh, if you want to chat to me about things that I run, you got to shoot me a note directly. Um, I'll comment on them. I appreciate the questions, <laughs> but I can't. I can't answer otherwise. It just makes everything a compliance nightmare. So I. I just keep the. Uh, this is just general sort of value, value chat here. Um, I will say that I've been very pleased with what value has done recently. Though it's been a nice few days. Looks like we that might was be getting a crazy underway. Crazy open yesterday. Yeah, what changed? That was nuts. The the vaccine. Yeah. The vaccine, indeed. People, I think people wanted it more than anything else. Like when you look at the, I, I think I thought I saw that the vaccine's only effective if you store it at negative one hundred degrees Fahrenheit. Well, you just got to figure that out. How are we going to roll that out? I don't know. 
in practical terms, it sounds like it's pretty hard. Capitalism will know. solve that. That's true. We've already solved that problem in the future, so don't worry about it. That's right. And it's discounted back to the present at zero, so we've already done that. We're on to the next problem. I thought it was funny to watch some of the names that sold off. My favorite, I mean, you know, you guys listen, so you got to hear about it, but curate. Like, uh, my man ignore narrative was like, oh, I thought I owned value coming in today. <laughs> <laughs> Down like 8%. Damn you, market. Yeah, that was a kind of a head scratcher, huh? Uh, whatever. I mean, I sort of get it. Uh, sorry, fellas. Let's do it. What's the next question? Yeah, I th I, if you have a small position in your portfolio because your income and portfolio amount is growing, do you sell a small amount or wait for another buy opportunity? That's a very specific question. Um, that sounds like financial advice, which you should not come here for. But what was the question? If you have a small position in your portfolio because your income and portfolio, so you buy something and you're earning more money as you go along, do you sell the small amount or wait for another buy opportunity? I've been thinking about this a little bit recently. So I've been thinking about in, in discretionary terms, how do you get exposure to? So if I was to run a discretionary account, I might run more of a Buffett style. In, and you've got to acknowledge that most of the stuff you want to buy is going to be too expensive most of the time. So the way that you start out is just by buying a small holding and all of the things that you want to own so you can track them. And then I might do some other stuff with options as well to get a little bit more exposure to them and take away some of the market risk. But there's no reason to not... If you like the business and you plan on holding it for a very long time, uh, you know, never sell, then I think you want to keep on holding onto it and look for an opportunity to buy a little bit more. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's an argument to be made. And I've heard uh, actually Mark Simpson talk about this, which I thought was really smart. Like he has a kind of a rule in his, the way he does things that if if a position gets to too small of a size, then yeah. it's it's likely a sell. And, and I think like from a focus and, you know, potential distraction point, if you don't want to add to it and it's, you know, below whatever your threshold is, let's say 1% or something, maybe it is more of a nuisance than it is like it's, it's kind of immaterial and yet it's probably taking up CPU cycles that might be better used on bigger positions. So I kind of get some of the logic behind that. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, return on brain damage that's not worth the small positions because usually from what I've realized like those are the ones that are the biggest pain in my ass it's usually small because something's not going well and then it's like i gotta figure out oh crap is this like material am i do i have thesis creep what's going on here small and getting smaller <laughs> yeah yeah for the for the reasons that you're worried about too not like oh the market doesn't like it i could care less about that but like the fundamental business reasons and it's like oh yuck I think I'm getting closer to just saying, if it's underperforming what I underwrote, I'm out. Bill Miller advocated that. He said that they they went back and they studied like their mistakes or detractions from the portfolio. And where they found that they didn't do well is when they held on to businesses that got cheaper than their perception of value eroded, but they yeah. were wrong on the underwriting, right? And it's like, just be done, go to something you understand. That's my definition of a value trap. Just yeah, keeps on. Yeah, that's right. Keeps on. The price is still at a big discount to the intrinsic value, but the value keeps on melting away. Yep. So but, that's a. I think it it raises a good question as far as sort of a best practice. But wouldn't it be smarter? And what do you think? What percentage of of people managing money do this? But wouldn't it be smart to sort of 
create what they call like a Ulysses contract. That's a contract with yourself, right? The story is Ulysses tied himself to the mast while going past the sirens so that he wouldn't steer the ship into the rocks. And you can create your own Ulysses contract with yourself where you say, boy, if this, if, if the business deteriorates to X or if the price gets above to, you know, above what I think the value is, you know, of Y, I will automatically take this action. And I'm, I'm saying that right now before I'm even in it, uh, while I'm calm, while, you know, I'm not in the, the man has not fallen overboard yet. Right. <laughs> right? Uh, and we, I think we could probably all do a lot better job of our hygiene if we if we thought like that ahead of time and created our own little contracts with ourselves to do that. I think that makes sense. Yeah, like the the I always think about Julian Robertson had this comment about um, when they have a they they have an idea about a position, and I think that that's exactly what he's describing when you when you know it's it turns out when the th- the thesis drifts a little bit i think he describes it like a it's a chair and you think it's got four legs and you walk over and take a better look at it and it's a stool with three legs it's like there's a leg missing he's like the thesis is wrong we got to get out but acri likes three-legged stools you can still so. sit on it yeah so that there you, there you, yeah. go. I don't know. you don't want one with two legs that's what i know two legs you're dead it's the difficulty of like mixing together all of these different ideas from different people yeah look I, there was a comment that said if you lost money, then you made a mistake when you bought it. I could not disagree more. Uh, I mean, I, it, That's I, resulting. yeah, and and I just think that you update your ideas as the world changes, and if you think that the thesis that you bought something with is what you must hold through ownership, then I think that's crazy. And you learn too. Yeah. Well, and like the airline thing, I'm still not convinced that I didn't make the right bet. But in a freaking pandemic, it becomes the wrong bet. Like, what am I going to do? I'm going to hold it because of some rigid idea? That's stupid. And like when I saw that coming, I sold it. I didn't, I don't think that's because I bought it wrong. I just think probabilities came out. I got a question here. Do taxes affect your decision process realizing too much gain for those that manage money? Do taxes affect your decision process? Yeah, I sold Wells for a tax loss harvesting, and then it ripped on me, which good for the Wells shareholders, man. Shout out to y'all. But Did you sell it all? Sucked. Yeah, because I wanted the tax loss. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I'm not opposed to getting back in, although... I, I think I recall you saying ally. like three weeks ago or maybe a month ago that you'll be able to get right back in whatever price on yeah, that well, I did say like that, that wash. I said, <laughs> yeah, I said, tell me what makes people buy that after that earnings call. Well, the answer is a vaccine. So <laughs> there you go. So the, much for that whole wash. The year's not oh, over wow. yet, is it? it? I mean, there's a chance that you still see some tax loss selling into the end of the year. When, when do you have to get all of your tax loss selling done by? Like you can wait until December 31, right, if the market's open. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I saw would, actually yeah. uh, in Berkshire's 10K, I don't, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but it looks like uh, unrealized gains are up and realized losses are, are up also. Interesting. So. I think Buffett was trimming some losers, I guess. I don't know exactly what it was, but All he's, the he's leaning into it. Paying tax. No, yeah. like there's nobody that plays this game likes paying tax. That's why the tax law selling thing is real, right? I think, uh, what is it, the November effect or December? When do you want to actually well, the, the, take advantage of it? It's called the January effect because it, that's where the buying occurs. Uh, it's real. Like it, People wait. Yeah, sell in December, buy in January. Yeah, and it's often sell be- in May and 
can build. <laughs> you gotta right. keep moving it forward. If never so. Never so. That's true. Then there's that. Uh, who wants to do a? Do you want to do a political one? There's a Biden's plan to boost long-term capital gains taxes to forty percent. Will material? Do you think that will change the HFP world, hedge fund PE world? Get good luck getting it through the Senate. If it does go through, let's just answer the question. Um, I think everybody probably keeps on doing what they've already done. They just find a way around it, or they just yeah. I mean hedge fund and PE managers, the GPs, they're going to be just fine and they're going to figure out loopholes. Yeah, does that count for the carried interest? Yeah, carried interest is the, the is the the sneaky one that everybody's been trying to get. Nobody understands it because it's it's too uh, inside baseball, but it's a good one. Yeah, or like most of Congress actually knows people that benefit from it. So the idea of closing it is like spitting in your friend's face, which they're never going to do. But that's the cynic in me. Mm. So we'll see what comes out. It gets passed. Maybe it matters. Maybe it doesn't. Here's a good one. Uh, do you ever look for value outside the US? I know that Jake does. Do you want to tell your Japan story? I like that one. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> I bought the Japan ETF after the tsunami. feels kind of bad, but I thought it was good value. Oh, it was, it was tremendous value. Like yeah. 2011, uh, we we were teaching at the time, and there wasn't there was hardly any real value to be had in the U.S. I felt like, um, so we actually turned the students towards digging into Japanese stocks, and so they came up with this whole list of stocks, and you could get like company that had been 10 years profitable the last 10 years straight and was trading for less than the cash on the balance sheet. And I know like, okay, it's like a, a larded up balance sheet with there's, you know, it's overly conservative, it's low ROE, I get it. But this is like, these assets are very reasonable assets that are producing cash flow and very consistent, boring, unsexy business. And you could buy them for just like the most ridiculous of, of prices. Um, and we, we bought several different rounds of of Japanese securities and, and eventually it ended up working out quite well. So I, I wouldn't say net nets are dead. They're dead in the U S but they're not dead all over the world and they may come back again. There's a season for everything. I was looking at OMAB because of Ian, uh, berserk or Bezik, I think, uh, it's a Mexican airport, uh, owner. And I mean, that thing was screamingly cheap and he was loud about it in April. Uh, and that's doubled. It's still probably pretty cheap. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't own it, but yeah, I, I'm open to looking at assets like that publicly traded airports. That seems like something that would fit in my wheelhouse. I just don't have a good sense of, I mean, sort of, I got to understand the language that I'm, I'm reading and I worry sometimes about translation, but maybe that's stupid. I don't know that, but those are my concerns, right? Do I understand the local custom? Do I understand how people are communicating? Do I understand where people are grifting? Like I, I don't, So I think that makes you, me worried. You, you eliminate some of that idiosyncratic risk that you can't get at because of the language barrier by just more diversification, smaller yeah. position sizes, more of a basket bet. Yeah, I think that's right. What about taxes? I got no beef with the law or with the world. 
Because there are some weird, there are some places have some, you know, you've got to be careful of stamps in some places. You've got to be careful of uh, uh, withholding tax in other places. I might be a wanted man in certain countries because I haven't paid the withholding tax from PA trades from years ago. I don't know. I'll tell you what sucks is owning an ADR. The fees on ADRs are brutal. Really? Yeah, man. They always, they, I mean, they might not be material, but they piss me off every time. Like when I owned Bud, I used to get pinged for like a fair amount of the dividend would be taken out in ADR fees. It was frustrating. Hmm. I haven't had that experience. I don't know what, or at least if they were taking it from me, I didn't realize it. Yeah, I, I'm sad to say I'm in the same boat as you. I didn't realize. Was that Maybe a brokerage? Switch brokerage. Was it a broker that was charging it or was it the underlying ADR sponsor? Uh, it just showed up on the fidelity statement. So oh, was that was fidelity. juicing you, <laughs> uh, squeezing you. Yeah. Any more questions, folks? Uh, why is there not a net net ETF? Because uh, they're very illiquid. Um, they're very illiquid. That would and they're, be tough. they're hard to buy. They're just no guarantee that there's going to be enough around it. It'd have to be international. That's hard to implement. They... It seems like the ETF would be bigger than the underlying. To your point on how illiquid <laughs> they are, right? Like people some... would just like pour money. It depends on like it depends on the turn of the market. I've seen and it's been a long time now since I've seen any net net analysis. But there, I remember one that, or maybe it was negative EVs. So they were reasonably big. There was enough of them around, but not not net nets. You had a, quite you a what... few in two thousand eight. I mean, there was yeah. You could you could load up on them, mate. That was twelve years ago. Like there are people who are. People who are in high school here, <laughs> 12 years ago is an That's eternity. Crazy. It's like a different I, era. I know. I, I, I miss those simpler times. Yeah, well, that, was, that was easy. <laughs> Back when I was smart enough to just do that and not dick around with all this other stuff. That's the problem. You get smarter and you just get worse at it. Yeah. So, Jake, what do you take from the buff dog buying in shares here? I mean, I got to think that it's positive for his view on the economy, right? Yeah, or he I mean, doesn't I, like cash. One of the two. No, I think my my concern was always that I think he wanted to make sure that they had liquidity for any insurance claims that they needed to fill, and there was a lot of unknown about that. Um, and also, I think the the insurance market hardening. I think they wanted to have cash available to be a part of that, which uh, similar to what I think Markel has kind of been doing. Um, so. I think there was a lot of the answer lies in insurance as to why the cash pile got so big and why he wasn't buying back. Um, but I mean, in the, at the end of the day, like buying back at 1.1 versus 1.2, this is like kind of what we're, people are bitching about the difference. Like oh, why yeah, wasn't he buying back silly. more? Okay. I mean, on the grand scheme of things, is it really materially different? But he also yeah. made the comment, he also made the comment that he thought that it was that, that, you know, even though it was down 30%, the values weren't any better. Um, so he was thinking in terms of intrinsic value the whole way through there too. Yeah, and I think he believes the probabilities have firmed up a little bit. So the value's back. Uh, or, I don't know, or he just doesn't want to have all this cash. Did I mean, it does get to a point where like, this thing is just going to be generating so much cash that but I, I mean, we might be there. It's it's yeah. it's an incredible life's work. Incredible. Um, any update on Zoom versus QRTEA? Curate. Yes, I want to hear that. Where are we you at? Know, 
I don't know, but we got to be pretty close, especially after yesterday. Um, Today, I'll, I'll I think do it's one. Been bad too. It's a little bit. I'll do one. It's a little oh, bit hard to. Snap! <laughs> I might be ahead on this. No way! Already. Maybe. And I bet he's. I bet he's up. I. Yeah. When yeah, you're looking at the tickers, you got to remember to adjust for the uh, the money that Curate has paid out. Sir, I'm remembering. I'm not, I'm not talking that. to you. I'm, I'm talking about his. I'm oh. talking to the players at home. I know that you know. <laughs> yeah. No, I think. Um, Is there a way we can create that, a spreadsheet that we can track that? Yeah, I need to do it anyway. Um, but I, I, uh, I think he agreed to let me reinvest the cash dividend. I got to back out taxes from that distribution. Back in curate. myself. Yeah. All right. The, That's a big the position. Interesting thing, yeah. yeah the, the interesting thing is, um, I think that there's a reasonable chance from their earnings call that they may be shell shocked from the buybacks, and they may not buy in the shares that I thought that they were going to. So they may distribute um, your future cash, maybe distributed in preferred shares. And the reason that's sort of interesting is if you get the preferred, I mean, I need to consult my tax advisor, but I'm pretty sure that if you get the preferred and your basis is close to 100 cents on the dollar, it may be a tax advantage dividend. And then the the buyback decision is sort of put to you as the common shareholder. Um, so it's almost like they're they are not doing the the buyback, right? You are. But that would that would skew sort of my perception of the bet that I was making when I made it. But I still think it's a reasonably good bet uh, that I have laid, and two and a half years is a long time. Well, congrats, uh, folks. Uh, that's all we have time for. Adobe tells me that they need it needs to do an update immediately. So, <laughs> okay, oh, okay. well then, good boss. <laughs> More technical, uh, you know, whatever. Anyway, see you next week. Have a good one, folks. See you next week. Well-